0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something.
0: Welcome everyone to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch and with me, hopefully not going to throw a symbol at my head, is my best friend and recent
1: birthday boy, Aaron. Not my tempo, Patrick. Not my tempo.
0: <laughs> that scares me to no end. You
1: are dragging with this intro, Patrick. <laughs> <I'm dragging. laughs> and you better freaking recognize it. <laughs> I'm the one-tier guy. I'm the one-tier guy. <laughs> <laughs> that guy oh, that guy. Oh, my heart hurt for that guy. Well, hello. You know, if I did throw something at your head, it would probably not be a symbol. It would be a microphone. And you know what? If it inspired greatness in you, then maybe it's worth it. M- maybe. And that's a strong (laughs) mage gift there. We're glad you
0: could join us on our penultimate episode for April, and we have a great one for you in the form of Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, starring Miles Teller, J.K. Simmons, Melissa Benoist, and Paul Reiser. I recently caught this for the first time earlier this year, shocker, I know, and was glad, Aaron, that you picked this one to help fill in the gaps during our current situation. As always, we talk details and spoilers in our conversation, so... Be sure to watch first and come back to join us if you haven't already. As we transition into one-word takeaways, Aaron, why don't you get us started? I would be happy to do
1: that, Patrick. And uh, my one-word takeaway this time around, I will specify, because I've seen this film plenty of times, way more than one. And before I say my one word, were you saying that you this was your first viewing for the podcast or you watched it earlier this year and now you're rewatching for the podcast? The latter. Yeah, I was... Oh, good. Make, uh,
0: 2020 has been my year of original watches. I know this has been your year of rewatches. And, <laughs> of
1: not watching. <laughs> of,
0: or at this point, gaming.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> as things shift as they do with, with your life. But I, I know that, and it, you know, my movie watching has slowed down a bit. I'm actually rewatching The West Wing thanks to our good friend Jeremy and uh, Friday Night Lights, of course, with you. But when I'm trying to watch movies, obviously the pandemic has given me good reasons to go back and watch movies that I haven't seen at all. Before this hit earlier this year, I was walking through some of our voodoo library of things that I hadn't seen yet. Whiplash was on there along with her. So these were first time watches earlier in the year. And I'm glad that they'll eventually, this one making it on the schedule, but that um, I'm getting a chance to watch it for the podcast too, because it's always great to have a rewatch under your belt as well.
1: Yes. That's what makes me happy is Extra perspective for you. I'm excited to dig in because we have never talked about this movie together, like on a podcast or otherwise, and it's Damien Giselle. Anyway, I am putting the cart before the horse. One word takeaway. Mine this time around was abuse. Because where some may see greatness, others may see abuse. And the thing about this movie to me is that they coexist in a way that challenges our perception of greatness. And... Both the steps taken to drive someone to achieve greatness and also the sacrifices of said person required to achieve it. There are honestly a slew of words I could use to describe my feelings when watching Whiplash, but this time around, I was very sensitive to how Andrew treats himself and a lot less focused on how Fletcher treats him. And that's That comes from watching the movie so many times. And I'm really excited to kind of dig into that further with you. But man, I you know, Damien's filmmaking to me is just utterly incredible. Spoiler alert, as if you didn't know that already, listeners. And I, I really, I'm just reminded of how masterfully he gets us to ground level in this movie. It's a lot like what he does in First Man. It is right inside Andrew's head. And it is right there in that toxic, abusive, creative, artistic, driven, music world. And it is a freaking rush to experience all the same time being a little bit hard and painful to watch.
0: You're exactly right, Aaron. And what Chazelle does so well is I think what he does in La La Land, as well as in First Man, he accomplishes a lot of similar ideas. And one of the ideas that became my one word takeaway was commitment. First of all, let me just say that I think it's fantastic that a film like this was shot in, I think, 21 days and is less than two hours long. It's tight. It's, I mean, it's got the perfect tempo, if you will. It doesn't Ooh, rush. It doesn't drag. See what you did there. I see. You see what I did there. And I think it really does give us some insight into Chazelle's themography, if you will. I thought it may not be a word, but maybe it is now. <laughs> maybe I've coined it. Where we get to see some of these things play out in his next two features, but using a different set of subject matter, musical, biopic, things like that. And so at this point, we kind of know what we're getting with Chazelle. So his next feature, we're going to get something like that. And so for me, the word commitment really kind of encapsulates not only what we see from from the characters of Andrew and Fletcher From Nicole to an extent, but also to the creative team and the fact that this movie started out as a short film and didn't have any money thrown at it. And it wasn't until I think it it screened at Cannes, maybe, it was a film festival and it got a lot of buzz and eventually Chazelle was given money to make it into a feature. And so for me, I think that this is in as much a commitment on the part of the director and his creative team as much as it is the characters that he's put in there. Some of it's based off of his personal experiences, which I think is pretty fantastic. And as you mentioned, it's very grounded. It's very relatable in a sense that we feel the, we're sympathetic towards these different characters in some ways. I watched this for the second time doing similarly to what you did. I was watching Fletcher actually, because These are the two main characters that we're focused on. And much like you can do with Ex Machina, Mm -hmm. you can watch a movie over and over again, focusing in on specific characters. So I think that even to an extent, maybe not as much with Nicole, we could probably take a third viewing and look at her, but she didn't have a lot of screen time, unfortunately. I love Melissa Benoist. She's fantastic as Supergirl, at least in the first season. Haven't That's completed. who she
1: I was trying to place her. I was like, where have I seen this face plastered all over marketing somewhere?
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was <laughs> I was joking with Patricia when we were watching this last night. She said something in the movie about feeling like she doesn't have a home. And I was like, yeah, because yours blew up. And she was like, <laughs> oh, groan, stop. Goodness gracious. That's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> So yeah, commitment was my word, but you hit on something with regard to abuse that I think plays into one of the huge, huge ideas of the movie. And that's, as you mentioned, this idea of greatness and specifically the price paid for that greatness. We look at on the surface, Andrew's journey, but as you mentioned, and I mentioned, we both really kind of looked at the story from either perspective and I wanted to start the conversation by asking you a question regarding how both of these characters really pursue that greatness individually and together and how it defines both of them.
1: Well, first of all, I, I find our timing to be impeccable. And I'm just gonna pat myself on the back right now because currently I am super hyped to get done with this episode. Not because I'm in a rush to get done with the episode, but when we get done with this episode, I am actually excited because. The second or the, sorry, the third and the fourth episodes of the new documentary on Michael Jordan and the Bulls final championship season, The Last Dance are out. And I watched the first two last Sunday night. Now these second two have come out and it really reminded me of what happens in sports. And we talk about this price of greatness in sports all the time. I actually kind of got onto a documentary kick and watched a whole bunch of sports documentaries last week as i'm wont to end up doing and and that just kept making me think about that when i watched this because it's essentially the same thing we talk about like what does it take to be one of the greats what does lebron do that separates him from the rest of the crowd right that is not just talent how do you optimize that talent many people are talented patrick and that could be for sports or in this case we're getting to observe that from an artistic medium instead of an athletic one. So many people have potential. I think about this all the time about podcasting, to be honest with you. What makes a podcast go viral to the point where they have thousands upon thousands of subscribers and can stop their day jobs and get all this support and just podcast for a career, right? Many, many podcasters are talented and can do that, but it's a matter of so much extra stuff that goes into that, right? What is the price that you're going to pay in order to achieve that greatness? What is the risk and the sacrifice you're going to make, the risk you're going to take, sacrifice you'll make? And so all of that sort of was in my head watching this, and it was it was really adding, I think, perspective for me because you're seeing those themes, but it's in this different medium that we're not used to. Most people don't know what it's like to – I mean, watch uh, someone who wants to be a professional drummer for their career. I, that's a very niche thing, I think. And so we see this here. Um And, and I, I found that that compare and contrast exercise a lot of fun just to think about. But what I read this movie as is we have Andrew who essentially is desperate to excel and rise above the mediocrity that he sees in his family and all around him he just sees this group of people who are excited about almost nothing and this great family conversation kind of shows that where he goes off on his cousin and is like dude you're talking about your stats and all these great things you did you play for division three Like, no one is going to remember your name. And to him, that defines greatness, right? He specifically says, like, being remembered is what is important. He even makes a point of outlining the fact that he doesn't care how long he lives, which is kind of scary and and indicative of, I think, what we see in, like, a lot of musical artists, uh, like band members and singers. We see them die early tragic deaths. Andrew says, I'd rather die drunk broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table like this one talk about me rather than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. Okay, so now we have it defined. It's bonkers and it's crazy and I think he's wrong, but that is what Andrew's gunning for here, right? And so what is the price of that greatness? What's it going to cost him? It makes sense to me that Andrew... Would be willing to give what he does. And I think it's, it's interesting to look at this as well and see that for Fletcher, it's greatness is also reliant upon finding a Charlie Parker. He makes it very clear. Like he wants that person. He wants to be the man who found somebody. He's not ever going to be great himself. So. He will feel satisfied if he is able to draw that out of someone else. And so that's what he's pushing for. And he's doing that in the way that he feels is most likely to achieve that result, right? And I think in so many ways that what we see here is that Andrew needs Fletcher to be great. He is consistently late to things, Patrick. We see it very specifically shown to us in this film several times that he is not on time and he's dragging. He's definitely dragging and then ends up having to rush everywhere. He can't find the balance. And, you know, his tirade to Fletcher at the competition about how he says, you know, it's my part with some other choice words that we won't use on this podcast. There's lots of those in this, in this episode or in this movie, but he, shows how highly he thinks of himself and that he gives no credit to others. And I think that that moment is really, really important because when Fletcher responds to him and says, you never earned anything. God, you are a self-righteous prick. The only reason you are a core is because you misplaced a folder, someone else's folder. The only reason you're in studio band to begin with is because I told you exactly what I'd be asking for in Nassau. Am I wrong? And he's, he's not wrong. That's the point, Patrick. He's not wrong. He is right. Andrew has not technically kind of earned anything at this point, but he has an entitled feel to him. And so I start thinking, maybe Fletcher has a point. Maybe he does need pushed like this. Maybe he, he has to be pushed to that greatness, you know, and, and Andrew, from this moment gets pushed in some, the first viewing, I'll be honest. I said, this is pushing someone too hard for greatness. Andrew goes off. Andrew gets in a car accident, right? Because he's trying to get to his sticks. Dude, that's not Fletcher's fault. None of that. What happens is Fletcher's fault. That is Andrew's choice that he makes bad decisions, (laughs) frankly. And I think that there's somewhere that exists in this movie. and, And I love this, gray area. It's like my favorite place to explore where Fle- some of what Fletcher is doing is okay, is makes sense, right? Like I don't agree with Fletcher's put-downs and, you know, talking about people's, you know, calling them gay and se- sexuality jokes and, and jokes about their weight and and just the way he treats people in general, but some of the hardness in him about asking for perfection and expecting it is acceptable and understandable to me. Um, and I think they both sort of have this same goal and they kind of need each other in a very, very toxic way. Uh, if they're ever going to achieve greatness. And maybe that's what we see happen in this movie. Like where would I always, I like to think about like this, Patrick, when we talk about greatness, what do either of these people achieve without one another? where do they end up and are they content with their lives? And I don't think that they're built that way.
0: I absolutely agree with everything you said. And I don't want to rehash a lot of that, but I will say this, the movie allows us to see that greatness is subjective and it really, ironically, Aaron needs the perspective of people in order to define who is great. As you mentioned, both Fletcher and Andrew need each other to become great because if we can interpret Fletcher as a teacher, that's his role. And I don't like the term those who can't do teach. I never got that vibe from Fletcher that he was ever like a guy who just didn't make it as a musician. No, I think he's just a fantastic fantastic conductor. In fact, later on, he talks about saying that anybody can wave their finger around What I do is mold people, and I'm trying to find the next person. I understand how to read people and how to figure it out. I mean, he demands it, and Andrew craves that. As I was watching this, I started asking myself the question, particularly because of the dinner table conversation, who's the protagonist here? Because I don't think Andrew is necessarily. I think we have two kind of semi-antagonists. Because that dinner table conversation, the first time I watched the movie, Aaron, I was like, yeah, uh, Andrew, tell your brother off, you know, Division Three, that's terrible, whatever. And then I started listening to the conversation again the second time around. And it starts with, I think, his uncle or somebody who's at the head of the table. Uncle Frank. (laughs) Yes. Asking about friends. Andrew says, I never really saw a need for those. Wow. Okay. And then. He's asked about greatness and he makes the comment, I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anyone's idea of success. And I I paused the movie. I I literally paused the movie and I said, babe, what do you think about jazz? And in reference to drumming specifically, Uh she said, I really don't understand it. So I can't really appreciate it. I forget what the quote was exactly, but
1: you told me she said that it's just a bunch of noise. It's just a bunch of noise in reference to the drumming hmm.
0: And I said, that's interesting, because I think a lot of people would say the exact same thing. Agree. of land hits it that that it's misunderstood. But the question is asked, does that make it great because it's misunderstood? Does it make it great because it's a dying art form? I don't think so, Aaron. And the fact is, not everybody loved Kobe Bryant. Not everybody was into basketball. Not everybody loved uh, Michael Jackson. And I think that's pretty sad because Michael Jackson's amazing. But when we talk about those that are great in their respective professions, fields, whatever, we have to keep in mind that that is defined, at least in part, by the response of an audience. Because the fact is, Andrew can't be great in a vacuum. He can't sit back in his makeshift dorm room with his kit and play perfectly unless somebody else hears him. And Fletcher can't be great by finding the next Charlie Parker because if he's sitting in his studio band, you know, B-15 or B-16 practicing all the time, he has to show people. And looking at that, it really does put an emphasis on the reliance of other people, which is ironic. Maybe not necessarily friends, but you need validation from, from someone. And the fact is... I think he's wrong personally that I would rather die at 90 rich and sober and have nobody know who I am because what legacy is defined so differently for everybody. Your legacy could be one thing. My legacy could be another. We've talked offline about how great it would be if this show became the thing that we did, but we've seen that we've gotten to a place where it's okay if it doesn't because we enjoy what it is. And if somehow we win the lottery or something crazy happens and it moves to that, fantastic. I have aspirations of making great short films, but I have to actually put in the work to do it, Aaron. And I have to actually have people to watch it. And so the level of greatness is a multifaceted thing. It cannot just be done by one person. And I think that's where, where Andrew misses it in some ways, but I think where he starts to get it in the last half of the movie because of his determination to play – and maybe specifically to play for Fletcher, because I think he sees Fletcher as seeing his greatness more than anybody.
1: Oh, absolutely. I I'll get to that when we talk about the ending. I, um, specifically, I'll I'll say my thoughts on that. But I agree wholeheartedly that that is the way that the film is going and showing us. It is fascinating because when you talk about things like a podcast or creator streaming, I've had these conversations with you offline even recently where my reaction to pretty much anybody the I've become Fletcher in a lot of ways is what I've seen in myself and and I don't go around like saying some of the things that he says people trust me don't worry about that but when anybody tells me man I could do that man I I, you know what I, I could have been great I was awesome at YouTube I was streaming you know if I just I just you know, could have been, could have been the top. I was the best, yada, yada, yada. I said, no, you weren't, you weren't the best. Were you the best? You were the best. You, you maybe thought you might've been able able to be the best, but you weren't the best because you didn't do the thing. And that's the difference is you have to do the thing to be the best, to be, to be great. You have to do the thing. You can't just have potential. You can't not sacrifice and be great. And that is where the distinction keeps coming in is people will say, well, I could be X, Y, Z, but I got a wife, but I got a kid. Okay. Yes. Understood. Absolutely. That's where contentment comes into play in decisions in life that we make. But for those people that want to be great, those people in many aspects of life will have to sacrifice things like the family, the girlfriend, whatever else it may be in order to achieve that. And so it's all a matter of, is the juice worth the squeeze? And is the cost worth paying? Because you, but you don't, to me, you don't get to say I could be X unless you're willing to do it. Like you're not, you don't get to claim that position because to me there's, there is something special about those who do achieve it and those who put in the work to become the best. I I think about it in sports all the time because I'm such an into athletics, but how many great players who the next Michael Jordan, right? There is another level that the top tier people hit. That again, it's not necessarily all about talent. It's about work. It's about eth- work ethic. It's about determination and desire. That's what people always talk about with Kobe. Kobe, if you, if you look at Kobe's like actual importance in certain championships and teams, like he's not the guy winning MVP in the finals. It's Shaq. You know, like he's there and he's very important and he's amazing. But there's like another level that he kept pushing himself to above and beyond others. And it just keeps driving and driving. And so that is where someone like that's what Andrew needs. But Andrew doesn't have that fire in him like to do it on his own. Very, very few people do. And so without somebody saying, hey, Andrew, you got to put in the work. I don't think Andrew gets there from the way we see Andrew at the beginning of this film, Patrick it is clear to me that Fletcher pushes him to his greatness. And I think what we get to experience is that very early on in this movie, these two characters quickly meet and realize that potential for each of them and how they can be that other person for each other. And they realize that symbiotic need and they start going after it. And yet it's toxic. Like I said, because Andrew hates the way that Fletcher communicates he's actually okay with being pushed, but he hates the act, the method and Fletcher understands that Andrew can get there and is frustrated that he's not getting there faster. And he's, he's seemingly not picking up what he's putting down. And so it's just this whirlwind, you know, of a, of a thing as they both are chasing this shared greatness that, like you said, has to eventually be tied together for it to work. You know, I I think he, I think he wants to put in the work. I just think he doesn't
0: understand how at the beginning. I think it takes Fletcher putting him on that path where he has to put in the work. And we see that in the middle part of the film, spending so much time killing himself on the kit. Uh, there's a great sequence visually where we see him wrapping and rewrapping that blister. And it's just awful. I mean, you can feel the exhaustion in him, you see him sweating profusely because he's trying to get that that rhythm going on and i think aaron it's because he has ambition and i think a lot of us have ambition but we have to be able to have that triggered by something and in this movie andrew goes to great lengths to make sure he's not distracted by anything including breaking up with his girlfriend alienating his family and even living alone and we know that that ambition exists even before all that happens because there's a great conversation with Nicole when they go out on their first date and they're having pizza and it's his reaction to her saying she doesn't really know what she wants to do. She's not really happy at her school and he's kind of taken aback by that. And I think that starts to hint at the fact that it's not only that he has ambition, but that he kind of resents people that don't because he lives in this myopic world where he doesn't get that other people don't have something in life that they're shooting for, that some people are just going to college to figure stuff out. It's almost insulting to him to know that his life's not figured out. And it's a little surprising because I felt that way when I went to college. I don't regret the degree that I got. I love my college experience, but I wish that and hope that for my son, if he decides to go to school, which is another thing that I've kind of backed off on because he doesn't have to go to school Not everybody has to go to college is I would love for eventually the, the higher education to extend to five years, have a five-year education standard. So that first year you can get your feet wet. That's what Nicole's doing. He obviously doesn't understand that. He's like, he quickly answers, yeah, this is where I'm going. You know, where do you go to school? And he just quickly answers. Dead set, knows exactly what he wants. And to me, I think that hints at that ambition that's untapped, but that eventually leads to some destructive behavior.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, yeah, it's destructive for him. I, you know, I, it's hard to write, uh, resonate with Andrew because I don't feel like Andrew. Honestly. And sometimes we can easily pick up on another character that we're watching and kind of feel like we're in their shoes and we would, we would understand what it would be like, but I'm not like him, Patrick. And. Just knowing that my name is going to be on a plaque somewhere remembered by people because I did a thing one time is not something that keeps me going. I need that shared attaboy. You know, I need people in the here and now to be proud of me and to want to joyfully share in my success together. And he doesn't really have that. Even, Even his dad, man, it doesn't feel like he's fully like in need of his dad's support or his dad's approval for what he's doing. And he's consumed by this. It's to me, it's honestly destructive in, in many ways. I, you know, he, we don't see him ever do anything other than music. He doesn't end the movie dates with his dad, but he doesn't know television, no video games, no extracurricular activities. It's just music. That's it. And he makes it very clear during that tirade with his family, like you said, that he doesn't want friends. He doesn't care about that. Very few scenes with Nicole kind of pushing us forward in their relationship. But we get enough sense that, you know, they've been out a few times here and there. And how he treats her is it's he self-sabotages the relationship before it can become something that he has to actually give time to now that part i sort of do understand to be honest with you because i've reached a point in my life where i feel very similar to that and i had to really look at myself and go okay if i'm not gonna give 100 percent into a relationship like i just need to not get in the relationship in the first place and i feel like that's where andrew has gotten unfortunately for him he has to do it he figures that out in the middle of one and it, dude this speech i wrote it down because it's just one of the most interesting things i wondered what you thought like is he wrong for this and how he treats her like is his ambition and how it leads to this conversation is he wrong for doing this or is he actually doing the right thing he says i'm just gonna lay it out there this is why i don't think we should be together and i've thought about it a lot and this is what's gonna happen i'm gonna keep pursuing what i'm pursuing drumming And because I'm doing that, it's going to take up more and more of my time and I'm not going to be able to spend as much time with you. And when I do spend time with you, I'm going to be thinking about drumming and I'm going to be thinking about jazz music, my charts, all that. And because of that, you're going to start to resent me and you're going to tell me to ease up on the drumming, spend more time with you because you're not feeling important and I'm not going to be able to do that. And really, I'm going to start to resent you for even asking me to stop drumming. And we're just going to start to hate each other and it's going to get very, it's going to get ugly. And so for those reasons, I'd rather just, you know, break it off clean because I want to be great in a vac what do you think about that statement I I wanted to talk about that statement for a second because his ambition is like basically defined in that paragraph right there and how he's treating her because to our knowledge she's the only thing in this movie that she cares about in form of human being (laughs) maybe his dad but like he's you know, kind of impartial there, not mean to his dad, but like, she's the only thing he might have a semblance of care for that's living. So what do you make of that?
0: Well, I think it's honest and it reminds me a lot of the conversation at the beginning of the social network with Mark Zuckerberg and Eric Albright. It's a very honest conversation and very rhythmic too, to keep with that theme. What I think it, shows us is that Andrew relies on prediction. He relies on the predictability of life. I mean, he's a musician for goodness sakes. He doesn't, it's only until the, at the end of the movie where he goes off script and he doesn't have music to read. Everything to him has always been about, this is the path I'm on. These are the notes I'm supposed to play. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so to him, I don't think he's – he thinks he's doing anything wrong. I think he looks at this as, look, I know how it's going to go down. This is how I feel. But he doesn't take into account how she feels. He doesn't take into account the unpredictability of relationships. Aaron, I will have been married 11 years in August, and there have been so many things that were unpredictable about my relationship with my wife. The way that I parent changes from week to week and month to month not drastically where I feel like I'm doing one thing right and one thing wrong, but there are days when I feel like I'm failing at both being a husband and a dad. And there are other days when I feel like I'm succeeding because that's how life is. Life is full of unpredictability. Ironically, life is a lot like jazz, very syncopated and very, um, arrhythmic sometimes. So when you look at this conversation, it definitely shows us that, insight into andrew's world but it's just plain mean and it doesn't give nicole a chance to be what she's meant to be which is a participant in that relationship he has laid that out and he has said this is how i think our relationship will go and so therefore i'm just going to cut it off now he doesn't give her a chance he doesn't give the relationship a chance to be something that he wants and so it's self tap it's self-sabotaging and it's very much a sad moment in the movie, but at the same time, it's consistent with who he is.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's okay to an extent. I I really do. I, you're right. It is sort of mean in a sense. It is Would I love for him to have handled this differently. Sure. But if he handled this differently, he wouldn't be who he is. And he probably wouldn't need to have been handling it at all because he would have been in the relationship. So I think for his character, this is an honestly reasonable attempt at stopping things before they get worse. Like, I think it's coming from a place of kindness. And I love your – I love, love, love your comparison to Zuckerberg and the social network and Erica because it is the same thing. He – in his head, he thinks he is – doing her a favor and he is saving her heartbreak right it's it's the intent is not harmful it is not hurtful intent but yes it hurts her regardless that's just something that happens in life but i like the fact that he at least makes an effort here (laughs) to try and get out of this thing as best he can because he knows what he's got to do and again but anyway this just defines for me That ambition, like the ambition and the drive to be great. This is what we were talking about, where it's always going to cost sacrifice. What are you going to do that other people aren't going to do? What's the work you're going to put in that Joe Schmo isn't going to put in? Film criticism world, I see it all the time. People want to be in Seattle Film Critics Society and they message or they – Talk to us on Twitter or whatever. They're like, Hey, what, what do I have to do to get in? You know, I've, I've, I've written like 10 reviews this year and we're like, there's a minimum of 48 reviews in a year. Like you have to, and they have to be done within a week of the movie's release or whatever. And you that, well, that's a lot. Yes, that's a lot. There's a commitment to anything. If you want to achieve that, you want to be known, you have to pay that price. Heck, you and I had this conversation before the podcast from a personal standpoint to some extent today about just life and our own lives and what's going to ever in what is going to be our costs. You know, what are we willing to pay to get to a certain point or what are you going to be content with? And so I love how it's summed up in this. And I think, you know, for Fletcher, we have to keep in mind, this is an older man who's been through the ringer. The whole Sean Casey, Casey is interesting to me because when he learns of Casey's death, the movie gives us no reason to believe that he is anything other than completely upset. We don't know how genuine or where that upsetness comes from. I'm i actually questioning it. I don't know if he's sad that this student that he was close to has passed away, or if he's sad at the loss of a potential great musician that never became the thing that he thought he could be. I lean toward the latter, which is sad, but... Like for him, he's got the same ambition. And I think, I think he feels like there's a ticking clock, you know, and so he's got this opportunity and he is going to push every button as hard as he can and use every tactic that he can. And it's because he wants to draw that out. And I think the difference is that he's never fully honest about it with anybody. Whereas if we're going to separate them and give anybody like a little bit of grace, we would give Andrew that grace because he tries to be honest with people. Fletcher never really is. I mean, he's up front about the cost of greatness, but he, if you want to say Andrew's mean, well, there are words that we can't use to define what Fletcher is to people. Um, and Andrew doesn't degrade Nicole per se, in any way. I mean, well, I guess he does in a way. He makes fun of her school choices, but not in the way that Fletcher basically dehumanizes people. And so that's where this ambition is separated, I think, for the two of them. Absolutely. And when you look at
0: how Fletcher reacts to that death And you find out later that it wasn't a car accident. He actually hanged himself. It puts that moment that he is weeping and breaking down into perspective because it does call into question. What's he really upset about? Is he upset that he lost someone that could have been great? Is he upset because his name will not be great because that guy is gone? Is he upset because he knows in his head? that the mental abuse that he caused this kid probably led to that. I mean, it's a multitude of things. I don't think his emotion is insincere. I don't know that his motive behind it is what we think it is. I think it's a multitude of things. And I think those can all be true, Aaron. I think that when you look at his relationship with Andrew, one thing that we see is that he's consistent. Like, he doesn't back off. In fact, that moment that he listens to the music and he tells that story I think it's the next scene where he is completely just wearing the three drummers out and to me I think that's part of his grief I think that's part of his grieving process where he's getting out his anger he's getting out his frustration he's getting out his sadness and to me that's a point in the movie that Andrew says I've reached a new level I can't go back at this point. And I fail to remember when the event where he breaks up with Nicole takes place, if it's before or after that. But if it's after, it makes perfect sense. But it got me thinking about this idea of happiness and how I think ambition can either increase or decrease your happiness depending on how you see it, how you respond to it. For Andrew, he needs validation from people that know his world, other jazz musicians, uh, conductors, companies that would eventually bring him on. And Fletcher, of course, is the number one for him. Others are not. His dad, I think, is a sidekick of sorts. Um, early on, that opening scene where he's at the movie with his dad, I think it's cool that they go to movies together. but clearly we see a comfort level that he isn't challenged by at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie when he fails after the car accident, when he goes to the competition and, or I'm sorry, it's at the very end. He walks off the stage because he doesn't have the sheet music and he's messed up the number. He goes back and he hugs his dad, but it's not a long embrace. And at that moment in any other movie the conclusion that we get would be a long embrace and then a walk off the stage. And like, I don't need this. Instead, we get a short embrace and then a walk back where his ambition overtakes his need for anybody else. And what I was seeing is this journey that Andrew takes where he's willing to sacrifice anyone and anything for the sake of this one thing. But it got me questioning what really makes him happy. Is it a moment Is it a career? And we're not really left with a clear indication of what that is. We're left with an ending that is somewhat ambiguous in terms of its closure. I mean, we gather that at least in that moment, both Andrew and Fletcher are satisfied, but with what? And it leads me to ask the question, how do we
1: interpret that ending in terms of all these things that we've talked about? Well, Patrick, I believe that Andrew Smiles... Because he has proven himself to Fletcher. And no matter how much of an asshole this man has been, his smile back, in my opinion, is that it is viewed as validation for Andrew that he does in fact have it. And I think there may also be some tinge of pride in having proven him wrong and kind of gotten him back by hijacking his show in front of everyone on the big stage. But I really believe that it's mostly about that feeling of approval from the one person that understands his passion and like it or not, the one person that can judge his greatness effectively. And on the other side, I think that for Fletcher, it's also about validation because He has proven that his pushing of Andrew and others before him, sort of a lifting of the guilt, maybe even on the Sean Casey thing, because it has now resulted in him finding his own Charlie Parker. He has essentially created or crafted and molded greatness in his mind. And it's sort of sick, honestly, in that way, but because he's getting credit, (laughs) even though his methods are awful and dehumanized he gets credit for andrew's achievement and that's what he's smiling for and it's hard to be happy for him as a viewer but i think it's easy to understand why he feels this way and i i can't help but be conflicted because part of me almost agrees with him that it was all worth it for that moment and it's a beautiful, ambiguous ending because of that. And, and you know, here we go with La La Land ambiguity all over again, right? And endings and things are a little muddled and not necessarily what you want them to be. But is it the right choice, right? Is it uh, the, the right way to feel in this particular moment? I don't see anything particularly wrong with Andrew being proud of his performance. But I think that it's indicative of something that is extremely sad about his entire life, that that is the only thing that he cares about is that man's validation of all people. Not his dad, who's there supporting him backstage, watching this. Doesn't even talk to him. Gets a hug, turns around and walks away, doesn't say a word. He's a he's a dick. Andrew's a dick. I mean, that's the bottom line. And it's so conflicting for me to want to be happy that he has achieved this thing, Patrick, and he has drawn out this greatness, and at the same time be like, dude, screw you. Hearing your music is not worth all the crap that you've put the people in your life through and the dangers that you're putting your own rest of your life under because you want to make people happy for a couple minutes when they hear this music. So ultimately I think it's validation in both of their parts. I think that the smiles are them being content in that moment with everything that has happened because it gave them this. And it's just like I said, so conflicting part of you is cool with that. And a big part of you is absolutely not cool with that. The ambiguity and
0: The moment with his dad, I think, speak to the only clear thing that I pulled out of that ending. And that's that when he walked off stage toward his dad, there was a choice that he was making in that moment. To embrace his dad and to walk away was one choice. To walk back to the stage was another And that choice has now led him down a path that you and I see as self-destructive, as needy, as very sabotagingly bad. I don't know what the word is. But it leads him down a path that is going to create more problems in terms of his social life. He's probably always going to be a loner. All he will care about is... That next fix, that next performance, and if that performance is going to be better than the one previous. And if Fletcher's not there to validate him, it's going to be even worse. It's going to be, well, who's the next person that's going to make me feel like I'm great? And in some ways, I think that long solo that he does can come across as really pretentious to people that don't understand that. And I could, and I'm one of those people. I'm not a big, I don't like jazz that much. Sorry to those who do. And it may be that I don't understand it. It may just be that it's just not my thing. But I remember thinking to myself, and I don't remember asking Krisha this, but maybe she was thinking it too. Why so long? Why did you do all this stuff for what felt like five minutes of nothing but a solo only to lead into a final two note conclusion? To me, that sounds really egotistical. And it's like, really? You're not the only member of this squad here. I mean, it's a band. And so in some ways, I think that Chazelle was doing two things, as he so often does. He was showing us really how amazing it is to be a jazz musician and to be a great jazz drummer, but also how that can come across as extremely annoying and pretentious to those who really don't care about that because for those who love jazz it's amazing for folks that don't it's just another drummer spending way too much time giving himself kudos and i think that's what makes that last moment and the facial expression with andrew and fletcher so beautiful is that they're doing two things at once andrew is smiling because he's saying both i gotcha and thank you for believing in me and Fletcher we don't see his whole face and I think that's by design because we see I believe a smile and as I mentioned offline there's a reddit post that somebody has theorized that he might be saying the words good job I don't think that's the case because I think that'd be very inconsistent with his character but I do think it's interesting that we don't see the smile we see the The shot is framed right above his mouth, and so we interpret that he's smiling, but it's still ambiguous. And so for both Fletcher and Andrew, I think they're both being satisfied in what you've mentioned, but I think there's also some satisfaction in knowing that they got what they want and also that their relationship is kind of in an understanding. So they have this toxic relationship, but they're both kind of in agreement that this relationship is toxic, but it works well for both of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think I definitely think that that he's implying good job, whether he mouths those words or not, because the way that the whole scene plays out is incredible. I mean, and rightfully so. It has its place in film circles as being just one of the best scenes ever because it is so perfectly constructed, both from a plot standpoint, but also just an intensity standpoint, you know, with Fletcher setting him up in the first place, getting him on stage and telling him, you know, did you really think I didn't know? And he starts with the song that Andrew doesn't know. And it's interesting because, you know, in that moment, you're not a hundred percent sure what's going on here either. Is Fletcher trying to sabotage his own band and his own success in order to prove that Andrew's a screw up? Or is he yet again, trying to push him to find that next gear, right? Because what is jazz? We've, we've all been had it molded into our brain. It's improvisation, right? He should be able to pick up on the music and go. And he has a hard time with that at the first. And Fletcher even comes up to him and he says, yeah, I guess maybe you don't have it. And that tells me this was again somewhere deep in Fletcher. Like he's still trying to draw it out of him, man. You know, and so. He gets on there and, of course, he upsets Fletcher and gives him that, you know, FU as he's kicking off onto a solo, going and doing his own thing. And it's just phenomenal watching their facial expressions as they're, like, kind of trying to figure this out in public and how do we handle this. But once he is playing at the level Fletcher expects, Fletcher concedes. He starts directing and conducting And he goes with him, and they become a unit. They work together, right? Fletcher's bringing the rest of the band on, even though Andrew's still being kind of a dick. And he's like telling all, you know, I'll cue you. And he he just, he never treats anybody else as equals. It's all about him, even in this moment. You know, it's never about anybody else. No, who cares what all these other people work they've put in to get on that stage? It's got to be about Andrew. But in that moment, they do synergize and come together. It's not just about like seeing it happen or realizing it. They work together to craft that final finale Um after the drum solo that, as your wife pretty accurately said, sounds a lot like noise to me, too. Uh, I don't I don't love it either. But I, yeah, I think it's it's phenomenal. I love the ambiguity of it. I think it's what makes this film so fun to dissect and to watch over and over and Of course, wonder if Fletcher goes on after this to be a better man and be a manager at a restaurant where (laughs) Ryan Gosling plays piano. (laughs) Potentially in that
0: universe he does. But I don't think that the ending of this movie, that last scene in particular, would have the kind of impact if it weren't for what I think you and I both agree is our connecting point. And that's the conversation after Fletcher is let go from the conservatory and Andrew finds him in what I would
1: like to think is a first draft version of Samba Tapas Jazz Club. I died when I saw that in the notes, Patrick. I <laughs> I told my daughter, was she was with me today, and I was like, Ashlyn, you're not going to believe what Patrick said, because she walked out. I was trying to watch the movie this morning before my kids woke up to get my rewatch in because I didn't want to take time away from them. And she woke up early and came out for probably half the movie, and you could just kind of like see on her face, she's like, "What is going on here? This is this is like pretty messed up." Um, but she had enough context to understand, and so I told her about that with her being an equally, you know, obsessive Lala La Land fan, and she laughed out loud about it too. So it was a good, it was a good joke. And when I was, I actually saw your note before I rewatched this scene. I had forgotten it. Sort of actually is, if you look at the aesthetic, it very, <laughs> very well could be a could because. Well, the
0: conversation itself was pretty phenomenal. And I think that a lot of people will pull out the point in the conversation where Fletcher says the two worst words that anybody can say to anybody else is good job. As a leader of people, that line sticks with me because what I think Fletcher represents is not who I want to be. I don't want to be abusive. I don't want to call people the things that he calls his band or individuals. I don't want to yell. I don't want to be that kind of authoritative guy. But I have a tendency in my leading to kind of do things for other people. I tend to be a fixer. And this conversation reminded me of the fact that as someone who leads, as someone who is trying to pull out the greatness in someone else, you have to let them fail. You have to constantly let them know that there is always a higher bar than the one you're setting. That mastery and perfection are two different things. You can never get to perfection, but you can always pursue mastery. And mastery is always that moving target that promotes you to get better and prompts you to get better and better. We're, what, three years into this podcast and i i'd like to believe that episode 224 is probably a lot better than episode one in terms of audio quality in terms of subject in terms of whatever i don't know
1: that episode had batman
0: it did and you know we can be (laughs) forgiven for that but in any case it also had superman which elevated it so (laughs) leaving
1: that aside was that a flying joke (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm i'm sorry we're in connecting <laughs> points. bring it back
0: so hearing that conversation i felt very connected to fletcher because i believed in what he was saying and i think what he was saying was believable i think it was very realistic i like the fact that even though i don't agree with his methods he was unapologetic about it i like the fact that andrew saw him on The sign and went in and saw him. And while he did walk away initially, Fletcher brought him back. And to me, I think that conversation was the beginning of a mutual understanding that they needed each other. Like for the longest time throughout the movie, it was really about Andrew needing Fletcher, but Fletcher not being able to teach anymore needed an opportunity to excel in his greatness. And I think that conversation solidified his need for Andrew. It was manipulative for sure, especially the conversation outside the jazz club where he's like, Hey, I've got these, this band and my drummer's not cutting it, which I think is an honest assessment. But I think that was the beginning of his manipulative tactic to say, look, teachings in me and I'm going to continue to do it. And you're my student. So I, I love that conversation for really kind of rounding out these two characters and helping us understand and really solidify their motives, their ambition, their drive, and how it propelled them into that final moment where they had that understanding with each other after the final performance.
1: Isn't it funny how we always get this moment of understanding and honesty between characters after all the damage has been done? <laughs> it's this is the talk that should have happened so much sooner, right? This is this is the understanding that should have happened. The sit down. This is how I'm going to teach. These are my methods. This is what you need to be expecting. You know, this is something that shouldn't happen after you've ruined each other's lives in so many ways and it was powerful for me too because of what you mentioned Fletcher taking responsibility I think this is the only time we ever really fully kind of understand that he is a hundred percent okay with what he's doing he says sarcastically I don't know why anyone would have anything but peaches and cream to say about me, and to and that that spells it. Man, he knows what he is, and he understand and he is willing to sacrifice his reputation in order to find that person, that diamond in the rough. And I love this whole conversation, Patrick, where he tells him about Charlie Parker practicing with one goal in, goal in mind, never to be laughed off stage again. And Andrew posits what I think we're thinking as an audience, right, in this exact moment. It's one of those times where you feel so connected to the character. He says, is there a line? Maybe you go too far and discourage the next Charlie Parker from becoming the next Charlie Parker. And I believe up until that point, pretty much the entire audience is on board with that exact question, that statement, because we think everything has gone too far. And that's what makes... Fletcher's response, brilliant, because it triggers the ambiguity of the ending and lends us to being in a place where we question, because Fletcher says, all Connolly ever was to me was incentive for you. Oh, this is after, because after they go outside, right, when he asks him to be in the band, and I truly believe that there was nothing manipulative about their conversation. I really do. I think everything was honest in that, in the bar or whatever. Like, I think when he decides to step outside and... Go after Andrew is when he has made a calculated decision to continue pushing him because of how the conversation in the bar went because he still sees it there. He still sees that Andrew really wants that, right? Because otherwise, why would Andrew be in that bar? Man, why couldn't he let go? And Andrew says, what about Connolly, right? Go get Connolly to be your drummer. And Fletcher says, all Connolly ever was to me was incentive for you. And he goes, well, Tanner, Tanner switched to pre-med. Guess he got discouraged. And it's like, I mean, (laughs) them's fighting words, right? Like that's, that's the push that he needs. And so, yeah, it is, it is sort of beautiful in its own way because I guess this is Fletcher being the motivational person that he could be without all the dramatic dehumanization mixed in. And it makes you think, man, he motivated Andrew to go be great in that moment, even though he didn't do it the way he's done throughout the film that's so toxic and abusive. It's it's beautiful. I mean, it's such a beautiful from a filmmaking perspective, but like so, you know, conflicting, like everything about this movie. Yeah, and
0: I look at that conversation not as being abusive, but strategic because the fact is there are moments in the movie that are reflected here where Fletcher compliments Andrew in a way that make him feel really good. Like he puffs him up by saying that Connolly was incentive for him. That may have been true. Uh, It may have been true that he was the next blah, 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 blah. As early on in the film, he's, he's playing a little bit of the, whatever it is, whiplash. And I forget what, what Fletcher says, but he calls him, Oh, look, we got the next, whatever it is. I think in some ways Fletcher knows what motivates his students. He knows that his abusive method gets people doing what he wants. But I think he knows Andrew a little bit deeper in that he says, look, I've got to get him on the hook and then I can reel him in. And by puffing him up and making him feel like he is the one, like he is the prodigy, He can then start beating on him because that compliment in the jazz room came just before he starts slapping him and saying, you know, going into that, were you slow or were you fast? I think that same thing is kind of hinted at here because the payoff to that is his response to Andrew by saying, don't think I didn't know it was you. And then putting him through that. So I think he was consistent both times. And I think that, That's what's great about that whole conversation is that it reveals the consistency of both of these characters. You're right. Andrew didn't have to walk into that jazz club but he was compelled to. And the moment that Fletcher saw him, I think he said, yep, he still wants it. And I'm going to do whatever I can to get him there. Anyway. Well, good stuff, man. That wraps up another episode here at Feel and Film. For our final episode of April, we will be discussing the winner of this month's donor pick, Minority Report as well as having some special bonus content for our faithful patrons. Following that, we will kick off May to jump on the bandwagon of Buzz, covering HBO's Bad Education, starring my man Hugh Jackman, as well as a solid supporting cast that includes Alice and Jamie and Ray Romano. We also have a freshly recorded catch-up episode with your Black Label crew coming, so you'll want to check all that stuff out as it's coming your way. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll
1: talk soon. you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat.
0: And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Chewless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be
1: notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive.
0: And keep feeling film.